Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. Here's what you probably already know about Stacey London. She's been a magazine editor, a super stylist, the star of a mega-hit TV series, red carpet sage, a designer, all sorts of fashion-related vocations that have put her on the map as not just a style guru, but an every-girl guru, someone you and your mom want to help manifest your dream uniform while also being your nutrition doula, matchmaker, and life coach. You probably remember that Stacy was a guest on the first season of Unstyled. But I asked her to come back because today you could say that Stacy is a different person than she was six months ago. This past spring, Stacy underwent a seven hour surgery, a rare and science fiction esque procedure that essentially severed her spine in two and fused it back together again with titanium plates, rods, and some superpowers too. After five months of physical therapy, learning how to walk all over again isn't something many of us will likely ever experience. But she had to do it, and through that, she's been discovering what it's like to find yourself in your 40s, starting over again, not just with a new spine, but with a new view as a single woman, after her relationship of two years ended in the middle of a summer holiday. Before all this happened last year, Stacy penned an essay on Refinery29 loosely called The Evolutionary Woman, a piece that began as a standoff addressing the so-called rules dictating what women of a certain age should wear, But her story became a personal and public manifesto about living a life off the grid of what's accepted in society as an unmarried, child-free woman, and how instead, those perceived disadvantages made her not just purposeful in her choices, but powerful. Reading it now feels like a salve for me, and a lot of women who've ever felt stifled by the pressure to be perfect, and whole, even when we feel broken. Stacey London hasn't just spent the last year in recovery. She's shown us that even through pain, fear, and loss, starting over isn't about the end. It's about the beginning. Stacey, welcome back to Unstyled. It's so good to have you here. I know we have a lot to cover. We're always talking over each other, and we already started a conversation (laughs) before we started recording. So I'm just going to kick it off right here. What's your style uniform these days? I feel like you're in a really as I am too I'm in such a deep passionate vintage phase vintage I know I was gonna say you and me it's really nuts we I, actually I just you guys have to know we text each other Stacy and I'll actually when I'm on eBay and I'm about to bid on something or I've just bought something I'll text it to her and I'll be like what do you think <laughs> which and, is what um, I did yesterday really fun actually to yeah. have somebody to share that with I mean I credit you I think with like I ha- used to have an incredible love of vintage and I kind of lost that love particularly when I was in magazines because when I was at Mademoiselle may she rest I think that was the most narcissistic and material realistic part of my life. Now that Christine has kind of taught me how to use eBay, because I was such an Etsy girl, and now I get the nuances between it. Like, I I could not find anything on eBay. I was like, everything I find is crap. And then Christine sort of kind of coached me in how to do I'm this so properly. so flattered you think that. It's true. And now I've been finding great things on eBay. And the funny thing was, like, I was obsessed with eBay ar- around the time that Refinery29 was founded. 
In 2005? Yes. Wow. I was, that must have been when it started, right? Because I, or maybe it was a little bit before that, but I, I remember started searching and searching on eBay for things. And then I lost that. It's, I lost it, that love because it was taking up too much time. A lot of people email me, just ask me my recommendations on my favorite sellers on eBay. And I actually don't shop by sellers. I mm. shop by searches. Mm. Like I pay attention to the things that I like to wear and I'm always searching for those. I have a list of like a hundred vintage designers and brands that I love that are just like, you know, something like Cacherelle. It's right. like always, uh. always good. You know, really pretty like little like floral silk blouses and you just can't get enough of them. They never go out of style and they're wonderful. And when she's done with them, she either puts them in a sale or gives them to me. Yeah. <laughs> So everybody wins. Yeah. But tell me about your uniform really quickly. Like, what are you liking? What are you really enjoying wearing these days? Um, Or what works? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's the jumpsuit. And it's the slouchy jumpsuit. It's a Rachel Comey jumpsuit. It's an Elena Cohn jumpsuit. Like a mechanics jumpsuit? Yeah. There's the mechanic ones. Like, I would say that's specific to Rachel. I, you know, Elena does these ones that are kind of just bigger. They're kind of sackier. And they've got these front pockets and is there a trap door there should be because yeah. it, it when I wear them I feel like I can carry a few children if not my dog and when it. you go to the bathroom and whenever I do this it's like all of a sudden you're naked it's, it's like you're true. naked going to the bathroom because it's like it's an it's kind of an ordeal to actually like just well with with it is you're definitely naked with Elena's there are no buttons no zippers you just pull them off Last year, you wrote an article for Refinery29. Thank you for doing that. And I did, was, at your suggestion. Let's just be clear. We, well, it was really, you were ready to write something. And um, I think you're just such a, an extraordinary writer and storyteller. I was just so happy to be able to work on that with you. And we loosely called it the evolutionary woman, which was really a phrase that you created in this story. But the story actually started out the assignment. It was initially around fashion month. It's always a time when I think we start to really meditate on a lot of the the rules and restrictions, a lot of the traditions that, you know, that exist in the fashion industry. Some are great and some we appreciate and some are really responsible for the beautiful legacy of fashion that we all appreciate, but then some can be really toxic and um, really hold us back. And certainly outdated, you know, in the sense that for everything that is great about fashion, I think fashion is one of the industries that's slowest to evolve, you know, really digs in its heels. Why do you think that is? Um, it's an it's an interesting question. I mean, the the industry itself, I think, you know, runs a little bit on the idea that people are insecure. And to make them feel more secure, if they buy this coat or that hat or this mascara, it will somehow make them feel relevant and maybe even trendy. And we rely on that sense of being less than in the industry to make money. Like, I mean, that's really what it's about. You know, why would anybody buy clothes every three to six months over and over and over again if we weren't sort of told that, you know, what we have is out and there's something new that's in? There's psychology in everything that we do. There's the psychology of business. And in fashion in particular, part of the reason that I think people do wind up feeling badly about themselves is that fashion has always been this rarefied air. It's always been about how much money you have, how skinny you are, and how young you are. And I am very proud to think that What Not to Wear was one of the first shows to say, you don't have to be rich and you don't have to be thin and you don't have to be young and you can have style. So I always talk about fashion as an industry and I talk about style as an individual because I think that they are very separate. Part of the problem is is that we're not aware that subliminally we're being taught that we're not enough. 
by advertising and the industry because we don't keep up with trends or we're not as skinny as Giselle or we have different hair than what you see online or, you know, in in magazines or on television, whatever it is. And while I do believe that diversity is becoming a forefront issue in the industry, I think in the past, that's been the problem. If you don't look like this, you don't belong. And that may not be the direct message. It may be this mascara is got it's got 13 different proteins in it to help your lashes grow long. Well, why do we care? Why can't we be happy with the lashes that we have? But that kind of promotion of things making you prettier, more beautiful, you know, again, that's unfortunately that's all built through a male gaze. That's that's not exactly I think what women how women would feel about themselves if that wasn't part of the lizard brain sociobiological process. Yeah. And it is fantasy. But but to sell that fantasy as reality does make people feel badly about themselves. I am not going to tell you what to wear anymore. I don't want to be that person. Um, Also because, you know, I've learned from my own experience that we all evolve and we all need to have clothing that makes us feel beautiful and safe and comfortable. And those things are going to change at different stages of our lives. And so to say, you have this body type, therefore you should wear this, right, is, is a little too many shoulds for me. And so while I don't believe in concrete rules anymore, when, you know, when I say I believe in open-ended prescription, I believe in being the guardrails to help somebody find their, their happy comfort place. zone. Yes, yeah. their happy place. And that doesn't mean I'm going to pick the car, you know, the model, the color, how many doors it has. That's up to you. But I'm going to try and keep you um, true to the ideal that you have for yourself. My thing about working with people individually is asking them a zillion questions, what they think they want to look like, who their style icons are, and whether or not those are realistic or, you know, how we translate that hope and that desire, the things they want to get out of life. And literally, it might, I'm a translator. That's my job. I am supposed to take in all of that information and spit out basically an itinerary to help us, you know, it's like a roadmap. It's fashion GPS. It's to get you where you need to be in order to feel like you do have a style, like you do have an identity that is related to your wardrobe and not one that you can't let go of. You know, the biggest problem I think with a lot of people is that when it comes to style, they're not willing to evolve. They're like, this is what I wore at 20 and this is what I'm going to wear at 40. And sadly, that makes you look like you're trying to be younger than you are and not at all accepting of who you are in the moment right now. One of the things that I was setting up in this conversation is that you're a very different person today than you were a year ago when you wrote that story, when you wrote The Evolutionary Woman for Refinery29. But I think that what is so prescient about that that piece is that all of this change was coming for you. And I don't know that if you even knew it at, the, at that time that there was going to be a lot of endings and beginnings in your life this year. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your surgery that yeah. you underwent in the spring. Strangely enough, um, and I, I actually might get a little bit emotional about this, I'm it's not okay. going to lie. I probably will too. Okay. Um, I went to see my doctor yesterday for my annual physical. And she's been my doctor since I was 23. So that's 25 years. And she's That's a lot of life she's seen. That's a lot of my life that she's seen. And she was looking over my file and when she came in to do like a, a you know the last kind of series of tests with me she said 
you have basically been in chronic physical pain for four years. And I was shell-shocked by that. I realized that I had been in physical pain for four years. A lot of that came out of working so hard that my body kind of gave out. But to think about, it's the first time that I've ever had compassion for the person who has been in this kind of pain and how much compassion I would have had if in it back had been pain specifically, some, right? Back pain specifically, but also my hamstring I had operated on in, in 2012 or 2013, no, 2013, maybe even 2014. I can't remember these things. I had, uh, I ripped my hamstring off my hip. I have been taking, um, uh, epidural shots for my back pain for years. And I, I just couldn't believe it. I was like, oh my God, if this was another person, like I would have so much compassion for them. And I have not given myself a break at all about the fact that I have been fighting physical pain and ignoring it. Um, living with it. Yeah. Like, and not living alongside of it, like as in accepting it. There's been this, this sense of being in pain is um, an annoyance. It's irritating. And in some ways, I don't feel like I gave it the due that it deserves. That, you know, it's a, it's a funny thing to say, but you have to honor your pain. And I was not honoring mine. I was doing everything in the world I could to pretend that I didn't have it. And that's extra effort on top of being in pain. And, you know, it could be emotional or psychological pain, but physical pain... Physical pain is interesting because to me, sometimes that's the brain's way. I mean, I, I read about this. I'm not making it up. I'm not that profound. But um, I read that, uh, you know, the brain is such a complex computer that when you don't want to feel something painful, when you don't want to feel something emotional, your brain will not even allow you to think about it. It will redirect that pain into a physical pain, which is why we used to have ulcers. Now we have a lot of people, um, Dr. Sarno, who wrote... Um, healing back pain says that uh, back pain is the new ulcer and that it definitely is psychosomatic and it can have to do with many other things. That's not to say that there aren't structural problems in life, you know, I mean, physical problems, but he's saying that sometimes our backs are, back pain is made worse by, you know, uh, other issues, whether it's anger or depression or sadness or anxiety, all of those things can contribute. I mean, a lot of people tell me when they get stressed, they feel it in their neck or their shoulders. And I think I've had all of those things contribute to my back pain. But the great healer and writer, not to interrupt you, Louise Hay, who wrote How, yes. How, How to Heal Your Life. Yes. She wrote very directly about the fact that back pain was related to support and lack of support. Yes. Well, that actually doesn't surprise me because, yeah. you know, in a lot of ways, I've been adrift. I mean, I did what not to wear. I spent a year um, developing a syndicated talk show that was bought and not made. Um, and then I did Love Lester Run. And then when that ended, I, <laughs> I wasn't tethered to anything. And while I've done projects and I've been interested in all sorts of things, it's not the same as going to work every day. I don't have that. And not having that structure I thought would be okay for a little while. I find that at this stage, it's really hard. I need structure in order to feel useful. But did you have that space to actually focus on your pain? No, because then I started scrambling around thinking, I'm not tethered. What am I going to do? I finally had to deal with the pain this past year. I mean, like I had no choice. I cracked a tooth on an almond in January of 2016. And 
I went to get it fixed. I'm sorry. It's not funny, but it's, it's no, just, I mean, it's, so wait, it's, it's start, an it's almond. It's not that hard. It's an almond is not that hard, which tells you something. I went to a dentist who was very unhelpful and who told me, yeah, you just bit on it wrong and you didn't, you didn't break your root. And I was like, it really hurts. I feel like I broke my root. And he's like, you didn't. And I said, how do you know? And he said, I don't. I just know that you didn't. I was in what pain for three days. <laughs> I went back. He sent me to another guy who tapped my tooth with like a mallet in just the wrong way. And then he hit it and it just fell out. So there was a hairline crack that nobody could see. Then I found out that I had small fissures in almost all of my teeth and that I have a gum disease that my mom had and my grandfather had. So basically I was going to lose all of my teeth and I had to go see somebody and figure out what to do, which basically had to do with like getting veneers, which over. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Over time um, is not only incredibly expensive, it is incredibly painful. Yeah. That was January. In February, I went to the Oscars and slammed a child locked door of a car on my foot and I couldn't get it open and I broke three toes that went completely black. And they told me, God. there's nothing you can do for that. You just have to be careful. Walk around. It'll get better. Were your toes in pain? I've been wearing high heels for 25 years. It doesn't occur to me to think about foot pain. Uh -huh. And even when I'm in pain, I can shut it off. Like I can mentally shut off all of my thinking from any physical pain. That's how high my threshold for pain is now. And you're in a relationship this whole time. Oh, yeah. I'm yes. in a relationship we're this gonna whole time. We're going to get to that. Yeah, we're going to get to that. Because one of the things that was most interesting about that was that I was trying to pretend like I was fine in order to be in that relationship because I have always been afraid to ask for help. And I've definitely been afraid to ask for help from significant others. And um, I don't think you're alone in that. Yeah, I think it's hard. I think it's it's hard to be that vulnerable. Asking for help means somebody can say no or they can let you down. And, you know, when... I was raised by a very independent woman who stressed how important it was for me to be independent. So asking for help is very hard for me to begin with. And at that stage, um, you know, I was dating somebody who was a little bit younger than me and goes out a lot and is very social. And I didn't want to be the, you know, ball and chain. I didn't want to be the albatross. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, smiled my way through it and pretended that everything was fine when it actually was not fine. And I guess that was March. And then by May, I started having back problems. You know, I'd been doing okay with my back, but they, they came back. And I had my first spinal epidural. And I usually know immediately, you have an epidural, you can feel immediately how something has, you know, the pain stops basically from having an epidural. And mine did not. I sat up and I was like, something else is wrong. The uh, the upshot of it was that I had to go for several MRIs and several CT scans and several x-rays to determine that my spine was autofusing and that the loose vertebra were kind of destroying my discs. And we didn't know until I finally had surgery that um, my vertebra were 
sitting so hard on my spinal cord that my surgeon didn't know how I was walking. And I spent all of last year dealing with that pain, like that physical pain while trying to be a happy, funny, cheery girlfriend. And I didn't do such a great job. <laughs> I tried. So, um, ah, so I had the surgery in December. You did a good job. And <laughs> it was it was a lot. It, I mean, I couldn't wait to have surgery, to be honest with you. I was like, gut me open like a fish. Whatever you need to do to get me out of pain. Like, I can't wake up one more morning and feel this way. And, of course, the week before I had my surgery, um, my ex got hit by a car riding his bike, and he broke his leg. So there was a lot of drama. My dog had to get fixed. And, like, we were all basically – I think we have a photograph that <laughs> says, like, a... Merry Christmas from the cripples, you know. <laughs> and I'm eight months out of surgery, and I'm still, I'm still healing. Um, but nobody – I had one friend who told me about – who'd had a similar spine surgery – the only advice that she could give me because she said it's so different for every person is don't make any plans. And I thought that was kind of ominous. Like she didn't yeah. mean it that way, but I was like, what does that mean? Don't make any plans. How am I not? I can't make plans. Like I can only, I only have this six weeks. They told me it would be six weeks that I needed to like recover. Then I got to go work. I've, I mean, I mean, I'm yeah. working on things all over the country. Like I have things I need to plans. do. I plan a lot of plans to make. Yes. And, uh, it's not as simple as that. And I think anybody who's had spine surgery out there knows what I'm talking about. It is um, so physically traumatic. And I had no idea. I had no idea that I was going to feel so helpless. I had no idea that I was going to feel powerless. And the funny thing is, is that I had to have the surgery because, you know, basically from L3, that's a vertebra, to S1, which is at the, like your tailbone, my spine basically just collapsed. So I guess I didn't feel like I could support myself in some way or I wasn't feeling supported in some way. But, you know, when Louise Hay talks about that, that similarity, I actually really felt it when I had the surgery. Right. I was like, oh, my God. I, How could you not? I can't walk without a walker. I, have to, I had to wear a brace for six months. And it, it was... Um, you learned how to walk all over again. Yeah, I learned how to walk all over again. But I also learned how much you have to ask for help. I have never, that doesn't mean, that doesn't um, disallow independence and ach achievement of your own, but life doesn't work without help. Like that's the thing that I realized, I think that was like one of the greatest things I took away from it. And there are situations that are so extreme that the people who love you can't necessarily help you. They don't even know what to do. And I think that because I'd had hamstring surgery and I'd kind of breezed through that 12 weeks on crutches, it was nothing, right? I could do that. That was fine. Um, this was very different. And I had a very different reaction. Even as I started to get better, I started to feel worse, not in terms of pain, in terms of mood. And after six weeks, when I went to, in to see my x-rays for the first time since the surgery, I kind of flipped out. Like I saw all this titanium in my spine. There's all this plastic where the discs used to be. And it was after that that I couldn't get out of my head that there was all this like inorganic material living in me, not living in me, just in me. Um, and I started to get really, really depressed. And I just couldn't get out of it. I mean, 
it was that type of thing where I don't know how to describe it. It's like knowing that something inorganic is inside you, it made me feel even more like an alien than having a skin disease did. Or maybe it just brought back all those feelings of never being like other kids or never being quite normal and or feeling normal, which, by the way, is why I went into the fashion industry, just to pull this full circle. <laughs> I felt like I wasn't good enough and I wanted to be cool and I wanted to be beautiful. And I thought, oh, I'll go into magazines and I'll be, you know, sparkly and glittery and happy. And I mean, it did that to some extent and then it didn't. And then I realized it, that's not how I was going to find my self-esteem. But I want to go back to this sort of darkness that you kind of descended into. And yes. I don't think that that's uncommon, having serious no. surgeries or illnesses and feeling this aftermath, you know, this emotional aftermath and just feeling like you want to retreat. I will say that um, after the fact, my doctors told me that um, it's very typical to get depressed after spine, brain or heart surgery because it's actually so life threatening that your body really kind of goes into to trauma. Your... Yeah, to your function, everything. Yeah. It's very similar also to, you know, like the, the best example is men who have heart surgery in middle age have a tendency to get very depressed afterwards. There, You know, maybe it has something to do with mortality. I don't know. But I think it just more has to do with trauma to those specific areas. Did you think about your mortality? I did. And I, <laughs> it, I did. And I, it also made me think about the article. And part of the reason that it did was, you know, here I've been talking about, like, what does an evolutionary woman look like? What does an evolutionary woman do in a situation like this? You know, I don't have kids. I'm not married. I can't. There's nobody around me that's required to help me. There's and, also no rule book. Right. There is no rule book. But I, but I felt my mortality in the sense that, I can't imagine being a, as an older person, let's say 80s, 90s, and feeling that helpless and realizing that like I'm not leaving a legacy of children and grandchildren who can visit me or take care of me or any of that. We're and all going to be in it together. Of course. I mean, and I know we're all going to wind up in, in the, the same compound. house in Boca. Exactly. Yeah, I'm fine with that. But it, I, I got completely disoriented by the surgery. I needed the surgery. I just didn't know that on the other side of the surgery, I would feel like I walked into a Mack truck. And there was this deep sense of sadness. But my depression really took on a sense of anger. I was always irritated. I was always, you know, kind of at the end of my rope and even paranoid. You I'm know. sure part of that was medication too. Yes. And and I will tell you that I am not a big fan of pain medication. So I tried to get off of that as quickly as possible. I highly believe in CBD, which is the non-psychotropic part of cannabis. And it is a great help for pain and got me off OxyContin in nine days. We have one funny memory when I went to visit you and you have no recollection no, none, of that at none, all. No, no <laughs> recollection. She doesn't remember anything. I no. did bring her a babka. I brought her a chocolate babka. You did? I did. I did. I don't and, remember um, that at all. Yeah, a at babka. her house. But, but yeah, you, um, yeah, you didn't remember, but it was okay. It wasn't, you didn't need to remember it. What did you learn about yourself? I didn't like what I learned about myself, if I'm going to be really honest. What I learned was that... Um, by not asking for help for so long, the amount of help that I felt I needed was astronomical. It was like a, a hole that you could never fill. And I am the least likely person to admit <laughs> to the fact that I felt really needy. And I don't, I can't stand feeling needy. 
it's such a, it feels to me or it felt to me like such weakness, Mm -hmm. like that not being able to take care of myself was in some way a flaw in my character. And it's why I hired nurses, private nurses to take care of me when I got home because I didn't want to ask anybody to help me. And it didn't work out. (laughs) There is no adequate way to explain what you need in that kind of situation. The more depressed I got, even though, you know, I was, the surgery was successful. I kept saying, I'm not sad. I feel sick. I feel like there's something inside me that's not right. And I think that I started to feel that way when I first saw all the mechanical, you know, material in my body. You know, even as that started to get better, I I think that there was too much going on in my life, in my ex's life. And, you know, basically that relationship had to come to an end because of it. I think that that kind of surgery would be hard on anybody. But certainly, you know, after a little over a year of dating somebody, it's it was too hard. It was just too hard. I just we couldn't get back on our feet from it. (laughs) Literally. How are you stronger now? Well, I don't know that I can say that I'm stronger. Only the thing is, I know that I'm strong because I got through this. Like to get through this on the other side of it, be able to walk. I've never been so grateful to have a body that moves, that functions. I I have taken my body for granted my whole life. First world white girl problems, you know, and now I'm like, I'm just so grateful for my body. You have a really, really strong sisterhood and I'm, I'm, really proud to be a part of it and grateful to be a part of it. There is this kinship that exists now among women that's really much more openly celebrated now. What do you look for today in in a really, really strong female friend? Well, I'll be honest with you. I wasn't a woman's woman. I wasn't a girl's girl. What? No, I really wasn't. I would say that my, I mean, I have good friends from, you know, when I was super young, but I would say that some of the most meaningful female relationships I've made were after I turned 40. And part of that was because I was like very competitive. And also I thought there was one job and one guy and we were all fighting to get them, you know? I don't think that's uncommon. Well, it's sort of what I was brought up with. And part of that was because, you know, the next generation after the first wave of feminists, you know, we were, we were told to like fight, like, you know, like be like a duck. You know, like paddle like hell underneath and just be well, there was all shortage perfect. of everything. Right. There was only there was only a finite number of eligible men, a finite number of great, you know, creative jobs. Exactly. Yes. And that to you would have to fight to hold on to them if you yeah. even got them. And it's only in my forties I think I've dropped into myself in the sense that I am not watching who I am from some other space, you know, some sitting on my shoulder like Jiminy Cricket, like being like, Stacey, don't do that or whatever. I am wholly accepting of all of the parts of me that make me Mm -hmm. and including the titanium that's in my spine. And that hasn't been such an easy one to accept. But But there it is. But there it is. And I can accept those dark parts of me. And I have really, truly come to understand that just because you're next to a beautiful flower that you can't bloom as well. Like there's no reason because there's all the room in the universe for everybody to have and get what they want. That sense of abundance was already there. It's that we have to fight our way to get back to it. Right. We act a lot of times from a place of scarcity because of fear, um, 
because of cultural norms, whatever it is. But that's actually not, in my opinion, the way the universe is set up. If you look at quantum physics or astrophysics, I mean, the universe is ever expanding. That's more and more stuff, whether it's room or dark matter or more stars. And, you know, that's what we're made of. And so I always now make it a point to put myself in situations where I am in with women or I get to meet women who are smarter than me, who have a completely different set of skills to offer so that I can always learn. And I always feel like I'm coming from a place of abundance because my circle expands to new heights. I get to learn things I didn't know before. And as it turns out, like there's a lot of things I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can say from experience that you make us feel that way too. Thank you. Thank you so much for being, for coming back to Unstyled again. It's always such a a pleasure and and such a, a gift to talk to you. Thank you very much, Christina. I hope you'll have me back again. I definitely will. I hope you're inspired after hearing Stacy's story. For even more Unstyled Extras, check out Refinery29 or my Instagram at Christine Barbrick. You can also join the conversation using the hashtag Unstyled across your social media. And of course, we'd be infinitely grateful if you'd please subscribe to Unstyled on Apple Podcasts and rate us while you're there. You can head to refinery29.com to find this episode and more, and make sure to sign up for our exclusive Unstyled newsletter delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our show today was executive produced by Sarah Bernard, associate produced by Rebecca Easley, and edited by Priscilla Mena. Copy support was provided by Elizabeth Kiefer. Our theme music today is by the artist Koff, and we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruist at Argo Studios. We'll see you back here next Monday for a conversation with Gabrielle Union on her new memoir and fearlessness for real.